Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We've covered a lot of serious topics over the last few weeks. Zero tolerance, recidivism, HIV AIDS, presidential debates, addiction. Today, we're taking a breath and shifting our focus to the outdoors and your garden. Charlie Nardozzi, host of the Connecticut Garden Journal, is joining me today to take your calls, your questions. When do you plant flower bulbs and how? Should you prune that hydrangea bush now? Do you have a stubborn patch of weeds in the yard? Should you be planting grass seed now? We're opening the phones to you, so ask away, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Charlie Nardozzi is a horticulturist and author and, again, host of the Connecticut Garden Journal, which airs Thursdays at 3.04 p.m. on WNPR. Charlie, Charlie, welcome to the show. It's good to be here, Lucy. So it's obviously bulb season. Yes, it is. Is it too late if I haven't planted them? Oh, no, no. Actually, this is the time to do it. Uh, The next few weeks would be the ideal time. Usually you want to get them in around mid-October, mid to end-October. Um, and now is a great time even to still be buying them. Now, the thing with bulbs is that when you go to garden centers, though, they get the big shipments usually in September, and then they just kind of dwindle and dwindle and dwindle. So uh, the selection may not be as great, but if you're just wanting to get some daffodils in or a few tulips here and there, you still can go out, buy them, put them in the ground this weekend. So you said mid to late October you want to have them in the ground. Yes. And why is that? Because the temperature is a certain, um, it's down to a certain temperature? Yeah, so you plant them in the fall because uh, they need their roots to get established in the soil. And this time of year the air is cool, but the soil is still warm. So if you can plant them mid to end of October, that will give them around four to six weeks to get their roots established so they can make it through the winter, and then you get that big show in the spring. You know, some people frown upon uh, bulbs because they put in all the work, right? They get the bed ready, uh, they do the planting, they, may, they might put fertilizer, and then the little critters come and, and take their bulbs. So explain, yes. what's the best way to plant bulbs? Okay, so we can do a little bulb 101 planting. Perfect. How about that? Here you go. So first of all, you want to have a sunny spot. So a spot that has sunny, especially um, in the spring. So if you have a spot that gets shady once all the leaves come out, that's okay. But it has to be sunny you now this time of year and into the spring. And also well-drained soil. That's really critical for bulbs. The best way to kill your bulb is to stick them in some clay soil and just let it sit there and rot. Uh, So make sure the soil is very well-drained. Then you've got to decide on the kind of bulbs you want to grow. So there's all kinds of bulbs. You can go from the snowdrops, which will come up literally in the snow, um, to all kinds of other small bulbs like scillas and muscaries and kinodoxas. It sounds like Italian (laughs) pastas, doesn't it? Um, And then through bulbs and uh, uh, daffodils and tulip bulbs, um, hyacinths, all different kinds of them. Um, The key, though, when you're planting them is remember you don't want to plant them too deep or too shallow. So if you have a sandy soil, you generally want to go about two times the diameter of that bulb deep. Um, And if it's a clay soil, you might want to be a little bit higher in the soil just uh, so that they have enough room to get established, but not so much that they have to work so hard to get their flower stalk through. Now, as far as the critters are concerned, I know that's a big (laughs) issue with a lot of people because we're not the only ones that like bulbs. There are chipmunks. There are mice. There are voles. There's all kinds of critters down there just looking for a little meal. Uh, So what you can do is a couple of different things. 
First of all, you have to realize some bulbs they love, like tulips, and others not so much, like daffodils and fritillaria, or crown imperial. I don't know mm -hmm. if you've ever grown that one. Um, but uh, daffodils and fritillarias, uh, because they don't like them and they ac actually exude chemicals that those critters don't like, what you can do is mix and match the bulbs that they like with the ones that they don't like, and hopefully they'll get discouraged by that. So that's one technique you can use is mix in some daffodils with the tulips and the hyacinths and the crocuses, or maybe make a daffodil ring around your <laughs> prized bulb so they can't get in there. The other thing you can do is go down to the seashore and collect some seashells. Seashells, oyster shells, or even eggshells, for that matter, if you're raising chickens or you know somebody who does, mm -hmm. and crush them up, dry them, crush them up, and then sprinkle those in when you're planting your bulbs. As those little critters come tunneling down looking for those little bulbs, they hit those sharp shells, and they don't like that feeling, so they'll kind of go somewhere else. And if you're really hardcore, Lucy, what you want to do if you have the, like, these prize bulbs, these are species bulbs from Turkey my grandmother sent me or something like that. Uh, these you can actually grow inside a, a, wet, a metal cage, a, a metal cage that you bury in the ground, put your bulbs in it, and then you just cover it all over with soil. So the bulbs will come through the holes in the cage, but the little critters can't get in. So there's a lot of things you can do. I didn't realize about the the, the eggshells or the seashells that would actually deter them from digging into your bulb. That's a good a good uh, tip. Yeah. Uh, what about when it comes to fertilizing? I know that if it's a, a new bulb, you definitely want to put fertilizer in. What kind? So this is the time of year to fertilize, whether it be new bulbs that you're just planting, like you're talking about, or even old bulbs that have been there for a year or two. Now is a good time to sprinkle some granular fertilizer down. And I usually just tell people to do like a bulb booster is one of the brand names that are out there. Something that's high in phosphorus has some nitrogen in it too. Uh, some of the bone meals, you have to look on the packaging to make sure they have nitrogen in them. A lot of times they'll just have the phosphorus, that middle number, when you look at the three numbers on the bag. And phosphorus is great for root growth. So that's good to have. But you also should do a soil test. So a lot of soils will be high, naturally high in phosphorus, so you may not have to add that much of it to really have an effect on your bulbs. Generally, some compost in the hole, maybe a little sprinkling of bulb fertilizer if you need it. Um, but other than that, just kind of let them grow, and uh, they should be okay. You mentioned uh, putting bulbs that we know uh, little critters don't like, such as daffodil bulbs, around some that they may like, which are the, the tulip bulbs. Mm -hmm. But you also mentioned something in your book, New England Month-by-Month Month Gardening, something called bulb layering, which I didn't really, I've never done. Yeah. And I mean, that to me, when I read it, I was like, oh, my God, why haven't I done this before? Can you explain the bulb layering sure. technique? Yeah, it's a great technique, especially for small space gardeners. People don't have a lot of room. They really want to have a big pizzazz, a big flower <laughs> show in the spring, um, but they don't have a lot of room to spread it all over their yard. So the idea of bulb layering is that you're planting bulbs at different depths based on how big they are. So the big ones, like the hyacinths and the big daffodils, they are obviously going to be the deepest ones, six to eight inches deep in the soil. So you put a layer of those down first, then you cover them over with soil, just enough to cover their tops, and now your, your hole is probably down maybe three to four inches. Then you can put some tulip bulbs in there, and then you cover those over, and then your hole probably is about a couple inches deep at this point. Then you put the small bulbs in, the scillas and the snowdrops and the crocuses. You pop those in at the top, cover the whole thing over, and just leave it. And then next spring, what will happen is you'll get a succession a cavalcade of color <laughs> that will be coming out of the ground. So first you get the early spring bulbs, like the snowdrops and the crocuses, and then maybe those mid-season tulips and then the later daffodils. 
So not only do you have multiple colors happening at once, you extend your bulb seed flowering season. So it's mm -hmm. not just a couple weeks and then done. You can go for about a month or so this way. That's a really smart way to plant bulbs, and it'll make your neighbors jealous when they see the succession of flowers from early spring yes, to, to you, summer. <laughs> you become the bulb lady in your neighborhood. <laughs> I'm talking with Charlie Nardozzi. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Dalbethanchel. If you have a question or a comment about gardening, what do you do in the fall to make sure your yard looks great in the spring and summer? That number, 860-275-7266. And we're actually getting a tweet from Ben, Charlie. I'll read mm -hmm. it, and then sure. we're going to talk about this later, but why not now? He asks, is this the right time to trim a lilac bush to have flowers in the spring? Uh, it is not, Ben. This is not the time to really do much of any kind of trimming unless you have dead or broken branches. Uh, lilacs, forsythia, spirea, wigila, rhododendron, all those spring flowering shrubs, they have already set their flower buds for next year. In fact, they do it usually about six weeks after they're done flowering in the spring. So anytime after mid-July, you should not be touching those as far as pruning goes. If you do prune them now, what will end up happening is that you will remove those flower buds for next year. Now, some people might want to think, oh, well, maybe I've got a huge lilac that's just like overgrowing everything. I want to cut it way back. I don't care about the flowers. Well, it's still a good idea to wait till the spring to do that kind of pruning because if you prune now, what it does is it stimulates the plant to grow more. And that's not what we want to have happening as we're getting into that W word, winter. <laughs> it is coming. <laughs> the cold will come. Uh, so you want your tree, your tree or your shrub to go into dormancy to really kind of get settled for winter. Next spring, if you want to take the height down really far, that would be the time to do it. Or if you want to do a little cosmetic pruning after they're done flowering, that would be the time to prune the lilac. And what about uh, the hydrangeas? So some of them are just oh, falling over with blooms. Do we have enough time to talk about real, hydrangeas? Real quick, yeah. Because <laughs> people wondered, when do I prune Yes, it? exactly. And the thing with hydrangeas is there's different types of hydrangeas that are pruned at different times, and that's what makes it confusing for people. So you, I'll do a really quick kind of one-on-one about this. Uh, so hydrangeas, some of them will bloom on new wood, meaning that in the spring they start growing new uh, branches, and then at the end of those branches you get the flowers. So those are the paniculata types, the ones you see flowering now, uh, the PG hydrangea. There's a bunch of new ones out there, Quickfire, Bobo, Pinky Winky, a lot of cool <laughs> little names too. <laughs> yes, you like that, huh? Uh, Pinky Winky is a name of a hydrangea, believe it or not. And they're beautiful. They have white flowers that kind of fade to that bronzy kind of color. You'll see them a lot. So those you will prune in the spring. So you want to prune them back so that they get a lot of new growth on them. Um, there are another group called the Annabelle hydrangeas. Those are the big white puffy balls you'll see in midsummer. There are now pink versions of those, which are really kind of cool. Invincible Spirit is a really nice one. Those also will bloom on the new wood. So, again, you prune those back in the spring. Then you get the blue hydrangeas, the Nico blue hydrangea, Nantucket blue. Those will pr the, cl the classic ones of those will bloom on the old wood. That means the wood that's on the shrub now makes it through the winter, and then the branches that come off of that, then they'll flower. So those you want to prune after they're done flowering. So you don't want to be pruning those in the spring because you'll prune off the fruiting or flowering wood. The problem we often get with those blue hydrangeas is they don't flower very well um, because if we have a severe winter, they die back to the ground, you lose all that old wood. The last thing I want to say about it is these new variety, uh, they're relatively new now. They're called the endless summer hydrangeas. These are the blue hydrangeas that bloom on the old and the new wood. So these... Even if the old wood dies back, the new wood that comes out of the ground will hopefully flower for you. The only downside of these is that people will have to wait sometimes for that new wood to flower till like October. So it's got the nickname in some circles called the Endless Bummer Hydrangea. <laughs> there you go. So I'll take a call now. Tim's calling from Simsbury. Tim, you're on Where We Live. Hi, Charlie. 
Hi, Tim. I wanted, yeah, I wanted to know if I should fertilize um, my uh, blueberry bushes, high bush blueberry bushes, um, before winter. Uh, yeah, the only thing you really might want to consider doing with your high bush blueberries is adding a little sulfur, and that would just be to lower that pH to around 5 or even below 5. So if you can do a little quick soil test, you can go to a local garden center and get these little kits. And if your pH is like around 6 or even higher than that, you might want to put down a cup or two of sulfur around each one of the shrubs, work it into the soil or into the mulch. As far as the fertilizing goes, you want to do that in the spring. That would be the best time to do that. Um, and it could be an organic, balanced fertilizer, like a 555, something along those lines. And then, of course, of course, a little compost, too. If you have a question for Charlie Nardozzi, the number 860-275-7266. Before we go to break, Charlie, um, talk about, we're mentioning how to prune certain shrubs, but planting trees at this point in time? Yes, this is an excellent time of year to plant trees. You know, one reason to do it is a lot of the garden centers and nurseries are having these big sales because they want to clear out their tree stock. They don't want to overwinter them. So you can get some good discounts this time of year. But also, from the horticultural perspective, it's a great time of year to plant a tree or shrub because the soil is warm. It'll stay warm. And those tree and shrub roots will continue to grow until the the soil gets below 40 degrees. So that could be a couple months from now. So putting them in the ground, giving them a lot of water because it's been really dry, and just leaving them there is a good time to help them get established before next year. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. We're going to go to break. When we come back, we'll take more of your calls, your questions, and we're going to hear Charlie's prediction on winter snowfall. Oh, really? <laughs> this is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Fall always feels like the season that races by, and if you enjoy planting, now's the time to plan for a great growing season next year. Garden expert Charlie Nardozzi is here to answer your questions. He's a horticulturist, author, and host of the Connecticut Garden Journal, which airs Thursdays at 3.04 p.m. on WNPR. If you have a question for Charlie, 860-275-7266. Email wherewelive at wmpr.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I'll go to a call now. Arun is calling. Arun, you're on Where We Live. Hey, hi. Uh, hey, Charlie, quick question about hydrangeas. Sure. I've got a whole bunch of them in my garden. They are doing terrible. None of them actually have flowered this year. Any tips on that? Uh, are the shrubs growing otherwise pretty well, or are they all just look no, sickly? No, they're not. They're really, really stunted. Okay, no, so... I- so hydrangea is like a part-shade location and really well-drained soil. And I don't know if that's what you have, um, but if they get too much sun, t- t- sometimes they don't do very well. Or if they're in like a clay, a heavy clay soil, they won't do so well. So one okay. consider- consideration is if, they, if you do have clay soil where you're living is to maybe move them to a place where you can raise the bed up a little bit so they get better drainage on them. Okay. And, and, then, and, 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 and you said part sun? A part sun, yes. Yeah, okay. some shade in the afternoon is kind of nice for them. Perfect. Thanks so much. All right. You're very welcome. Bye, everyone. And before we take another call, I mentioned that, um, you know, the leaves are just starting to turn. So we yes. appreciate and enjoy this season. But then the leaves fall and we look at the leaves begrudgingly because we have to clean them up and maybe bag them. Leaves are actually good for our yard. Tell us what people should be doing with them. Right. You shouldn't be bagging them up and moving them off your property because they are fertilizer for your trees, for your lawn, for all kinds of uh, creatures that are 
hanging out around down there. So uh, if you can, get your mower out there, and as the leaves are dropping, mow them. Shred them up and leave them on the lawn. I know it might look messy for a few days or so, but if you can shred those leaves, chop them up really finely, leave them on the lawn, you'll see that eventually they just kind of disappear. That means that earthworms and other creatures are coming up and munching on them. It's adding organic matter to the soil. Now, if you have one of those beautiful homes, uh, some places that have those old maple trees and you get like a foot layer of leaves, that's going to be a lot of shredding. So those you're probably going to have to remove some of those leaves uh, and probably compost them. You can very easily make a leaf mold compost pile, which basically means put some wire around it, throw the leaves in there and forget about it for a year or two. Eventually, that'll be nice compost to put back in your garden. Amy is calling from Hartford. Amy, you're on Where We Live. Hi, good morning. Um, I heard you talking a little bit about lilac bushes. Um, I planted one last year. It had a couple flowers on it, and it never flowered this year. And um, I just I heard you say not to prune them, but I wanted to know what I could do to hopefully get my lilac bush blooming again. Well, is it growing in full sun, like six to eight hours of sun a day? Um, it's probably close to that. Okay, because that usually is a limiting factor with lilacs. And you said it's a young lilac. It is. Okay. It's so maybe about four feet, three and a half feet high, maybe. Yeah, so you might have to give it a little time. Uh, one thing you could do in the spring, though, is give it a little fertilizer, not only compost around it, but a little granular organic fertilizer might help stimulate it. But as I was mentioning earlier, those lilac flower buds have already set for next year, so the die is cast, <laughs> whether you're going to get flowers or not. Like, it looks like it's starting to get a little bit of something, but it never quite got there this year. So maybe next year? So maybe next year. And as long as it gets full sun, I think eventually it will flower. More sun. Okay. Yeah. All righty. Very good. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for calling. Uh, we were talking earlier about, um, you know, obviously what you can do with all those leaves. We're getting a, a Facebook comment from Anne because we're talking now. Let's shift to, to lawn care. She says she sure. lives in a shady area near mm-hmm. wetlands. Moss is crowding out her grass. What's the best way to control the moss in her lawn? Mm, love the moss. <laughs> Keep the moss. If you have a real shady area, a real wet shady area, probably the best thing to grow in that area is the moss. Uh, trying to get lawn to grow in an area that doesn't get enough sun and it doesn't have good drainage in the soil is really going to be a battle that you'll never win. So one thing you might want to do is just look at the edges of that mossy area where maybe there's more light coming in and maybe the soil's a little bit better quality. And there you can kind of pull up some of that moss and get some fescue grass. That's F-E-S-C-U-E, fescue grass, either the creeping fescue or the tall fescue. They do better in a shadier kind of spot, and they'll be most likely to survive there. But if you're in a deep shade in a wetland kind of area, I would say just love the moss. Just leave it there. It's great. <laughs> I'm with you, Charlie, on the moss. Yeah. Uh, we were uh, talking, you mentioned drainage. Um, mm-hmm. This has been another very dry summer. Yes. Should we, we be watering certain perennials and bushes? It's a great point. Yes, you should be. Even ones that are well-established, uh, perennials that you're cutting back, um, trees and shrubs, yes, go out there and give them a good dose of water. Like, let it really soak in a good 8, 10 inches into the soil. If you can do that a couple times a week, that's going to really help them get ready for winter. What I'm fearing is that because the plants have been really stressed all summer and fall from the lack of water, if we get a severe winter, which is what is predicted, uh, I think you may be seeing a lot of dieback and a lot of death of trees and shrubs and perennials next year because they just couldn't survive it. I have a question for Charlie Nardozzi, 860-275-7266. Again, 860-275-7266. Rona's calling from New Britain. Rona, you're on Where We Live. Okay. You might want to turn your, your radio down. Oh. Oh, 
Okay. So if you turn your radio down. All right. So what's your question for Charlie? Um, there are two questions, all right? Okay. Um, one has to do with uh, planting um, uh, uh, tulips and daffodils. Okay. We're, we're planning to plant them, of course, because this is the time of the year to do it. And our experience thus far has been daffodils haven't done very well at all. And tulips do a little better, but not, I mean, we'll plant, say, 50 and maybe get five or six up. And uh, and I'm trying to figure out what's happening, especially to the daffodils. Yes, because daffodils, as I was mentioning earlier, the critters don't really like those. So the key with the daffodils is make sure you have well-drained soil so they don't sit in a real wet soil all winter. And uh, I don't know how deep you're planting them, but you shouldn't be planting them more than maybe six inches deep. So if you're planting them deeper than that or shallower than that, you should maybe adjust that. That would probably help. And when you're planting daffodils, or any bulb for that matter, dig a nice size hole. Instead of just doing individual holes, dig a nice size hole put a little compost in the bottom of it, and then throw all your daffodils in there. And you can even put them as close to almost touching each other. Then cover oh. them over with soil. That way okay. they'll be more likely to survive. Oh, great. Then the other question was about a um, rhododendron. Mm-hmm. I have a rhododendron. Um, I don't, it gets partial shade, partial sun. Um, it's, what is, what is it? What did you want to say about it? Well, it's, it's been there three years, but it doesn't, it, the leaves are, are oftentimes yellow. It's just so right. Like it's Our rhododendron just isn't doing as well, and we get maybe one flower, but it's very small. It's not, you know, we, yeah, it, we, we start out with a small rhododendron because they're sort of expensive big. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, so, but I was hoping to get a bigger yeah. Well, Rona, you know, Rona, I'm going to, if you could take the answer off the air because we're running short on time, but let's talk about rhododendrons in your book, New England Month by Month Gardening, Month by Month Gardening, Charlie. Yeah. You mentioned um, when wintertime comes, you want to actually protect big bushes like rhododendrons. Yeah, so rhododendrons, especially if it's a young bush, it's struggling a little bit. You might want to put a little sulfur fertilizer down, probably do that in the spring. But as Lucy was saying, uh, probably around Thanksgiving time, maybe early December, put four stakes in around the bush and get some burlap and just wrap it around those stakes. That'll protect it from the winter winds and the cold and hopefully allow it to survive a little bit better for next year. Speaking of winter, is it going to be bad? Yeah, I think so. Well, it'd be nice. You know, for people who like to ski, it's going to be very good. A lot of snow, a lot of cold, some big storms coming. If we can get a consistent snow cover, it'd actually be okay for a lot of plants. It's when we get those freezing and thawing and the ground uh, has no snow on it, then it gets really cold. That's when you really see a lot of damage to plants. So, yes, I think we're going to have a more of a traditional New England winter this year. So besides planting bulbs, I love to buy perennials half price, 75% off in yes. September in my in my yard so that they you know come out in the spring and summer mm-hmm. and I don't have to pay you know spend as much right. but when in terms of of my my garden my edible garden and obviously a bumper cro- a bumper crop of tomatoes this summer but what are some things I could be planting now that I can still be enjoying till December ah. Well, you can bring out the inner Italian in yourself and grow <laughs> garlic. This is a perfect time of year to plant garlic. Just like when you're planting the ta- tulips and the daffodils, garlic is, should be planted out in shallots, for that matter, too. You can do a nice crop of shallots now that will allow you to have shallots early in the season. Um, in fact, there is a garlic festival happening this weekend in Bethlehem. So if you want to get inspired by garlic, uh, you can head up to the fairgrounds there and take part of that. But what you want to look for with garlic is you want to have, again, raised, so- raised beds and really well-drained soil. And there's two different kinds of garlic. There are the hardneck garlic, which gives you those scapes you've probably seen mm-hmm. in farmer's markets. And then there are softneck garlic, which has very pliable leaves that you can braid. So you've probably seen garlic braids. 
Both of them grow well around here. It's just really a matter of taste and flavor and what you want to do with them. So experiment with a couple different varieties. Uh, take a garlic bulb, break it into little individual cloves, plant those six inches apart, about a couple inches deep in the soil, and then you want to cover it over with some hay or straw to protect it in the winter. And that's pretty much it. You mentioned the, the garlic festival in Bethlehem. Um, we're also getting a note from one of our producers. There's a garlic planting workshop at Knox in Hartford for free, October oh, 22nd. There, there you go. go. <laughs> you have a call if you have a a question for Charlie Nardozzi again, the number 860-275-7266. Um, again, 860-275-7266. I'll take a call now. Uh, Bob is calling from Wyndham. Bob, you're on Where We Live. Hi. How are you doing? Good. Pretty how are well. you? <laughs> Thanks for taking my call. Sure. I have a compost pile that I started about, oh, seven years ago maybe. And when it got to about four feet high, I just kept it going along the fence post. Um, so now it's about 18 or 20 feet long. And okay. I just want to say that um, I live in uh, what was once a general store, so nobody ever did anything to the soil. I have some of the greatest soil in the world. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's just, you know, this, it, it's virtually black. You can take your hands and just move your hands down into the soil for about a foot. Wow. And I had gladiolas that were over six feet high when I put the gladiolas wow. in. Hey, Bob, Bob can over. we, yeah, let's drive over and, uh, and get, get some a little of that soil. soil. <laughs> no, I got great soil. And, you know, I have uh, two questions, really. Sure. Should I take, um, because some of this stuff is only a couple months old from grass clippings and everything. I compost everything except for uh, wood. I won't, you know, put wood in there. Yeah. So, uh, you know, garbage, stuff like that. Squirrels would get run over, unfortunately. You know, why not put them back into the soil? So they're all in that compost pile. Should I dig it and turn it? It's never been dug and turned. It's just been put down there and added onto and continued in the line. Right. Well, Bob, if you want it to heat up to get really warm, yes, turning it would be a good idea because that adds oxygen and that really uh, enables those uh, aerobic bacteria to kind of get going and heating up your pile, and that'll break it down faster. But that being said, whatever you've been doing sounds like it's been very successful if you've got this rich black soil. So you can just kind of leave it there, and eventually it'll do a cold composting process where it'll, it'll just kind of slowly break down over a period of time. So it depends on how fast you want to have it. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. We're talking about fall gardening tips on Where We Live today with Charlie Nardozzi. Another call from Derek. Derek's from Hartford. Derek, you're on Where, where We Live. Hi, Charlie. I have a question for you. I've got this. Um, last year, I let a, popkin, a pumpkin rot in the front yard, and the seeds went everywhere into a flower bed. Mm -hmm. And we have now, my wife and I have this wonderful little uh pumpkin flowering um it's got yellow flowers and it looks like it's we're getting this little pumpkin patch okay and i'm wondering it's not very big it's a few inches high it's got a few flowers and i'm wondering what i can do to keep it alive through the winter uh to keep the pumpkin patch going through the winter well it's not really a pumpkin patch it's like at the beginning of a pumpkin patch so i let a pumpkin <laughs> rot in the yard just kind of left it yeah. being lazy and it turned into a little pumpkin uh, a little pumpkin right. flower, and I was wondering if there's any way I can keep that alive because it looks pretty fragile. Yeah, I, I don't think it's going to survive the winter. You know, pumpkins, oh. once you get a hard frost, it'll probably kill it. Do you have any uh. fruit on your pumpkins? Uh, I don't even know what that is. Uh, pumpkin fruit, you know, like a pumpkin. Oh, no, no, no. There is no uh, fruit yet, just flowers. Just flowers. Well, yeah. you can eat the flowers, of course, if you want to. Okay. A good Italian would know all about that. <laughs> um, but otherwise, yeah, when we get a killing frost, unfortunately, it's going to go too. Okay, well, I will look for recipes on how to use pumpkin flowers, and I appreciate you uh, answering my question sure. for me. Sure, thanks for Although my calling. wife is probably going to be pretty upset. Oh, okay. well. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thank you so much for your call. We're getting a bunch of calls. I want to have time to, to get to them. Steve's calling from Canton. Steve, you're on Where We Live. Hi, how are you doing? Good. Good. 
I, I was calling about uh, a mountain world I have, and it's probably, you know, it's at least 40 years old. It was here before we even moved into the place. But uh, we had to cut down some trees, you know, that uh, were near it, probably shading it. And I'm seeing a lot of brown on this mountain world. I'm afraid it may lose it, and it's, you know, it's a beautiful plant. And I'm trying to see if there's any thoughts that you might have about it. Uh, yeah, as you know, uh, mountain laurel is an understory shrub, so it does very well underneath those maples and yoke trees and, and those bigger trees because so, it gets just part shade um, through there. So when you take out those trees, it gets too much sun, you, then you start getting burning of the leaves. Uh, so one key thing with mountain laurel is if it does get a lot more sun, you need to make sure it has enough water. So watering it a little bit more will hopefully help it survive. Um, other than that, you're just going to have to kind of wait and see how it does with these new conditions. If it's too sunny for it, it'll let you know and it'll start kind of slowly dying off. Or it might just adapt to that a more bright sun and be okay. Mountain laurels are beautiful. I believe it's the Connecticut State flower. It is the Connecticut State flower. So Very good, Lucy. So hopefully Steve can uh, <laughs> keep those mountain laurels going. Um, we got a tweet from John, and just going back to something you said earlier about soil test, he wants to know how to establish well-drained soil in his yard. So if you're not blessed with a sandy loam soil or one that's laden with compost like Bob had, uh, what you can do is grow things in raised beds. That's usually the best way to go. Uh, trying to amend ca- uh, clay soil is a long-term process to get it to that real friable kind of condition that we really like. So um, bringing in a, a mix of topsoil and some compost, usually I say about a 50-50 mix, maybe 60-40 topsoil compost, is a nice way to raise up the soil a little bit. It gives you good drainage. It has a lot of fertility to it, and you'll grow things really quickly and really successfully that way. Don's calling from Norwich. Don, you're on where we live. Hi, I've got a problem with shag sumac taking over my yard, and I'm wondering how I can get rid of them without using poisons. Yeah, sumac, as you're probably seeing, they spread by underground root systems, so they kind of yes, have... They do. You, you, get, <laughs> you get a whole forest of them, right? Uh, I do. Unless you're into sumac tea, which, by the way, you can make sumac tea out of the flowers, um, probably the best thing to do is be very diligent about keep cutting them down. Just keep cutting them down, cutting them down, and once you get the woody ones out of there, go through periodically during the summer with a mower and mow down the little ones that keep sprouting up. Eventually, you'll exhaust them, and they will go away. Well, I've been trying for 13 years. It hasn't worked yet. <laughs> well, doing exactly what you just said. Doing the exact same thing, and they still keep coming in. Yes, they do. Oh, well, you can actually try to start digging them up a little bit, too. That would be another thing to try to do, so taking out some of the root system. That's a little more work involved, but it might be a little uh, more effective. Um, I wanted to go back to a tweet from Teresa. She wants to know what she should do, should be doing for her roses that didn't do so well. Ah, okay. So roses, yes. We're talking about watering them. So keep those shrubs watered, even though they may not be flowering and just kind of starting to drop their leaves a little bit. Keep them well watered into the fall as it as we uh, go towards closer and closer to frost. And then once we get some cold weather, get a few freezes, maybe again around Thanksgiving time, that would be a good time of year to actually get some bark mulch or some wood chips. Just bury the shrub in it. So a bury it about a foot deep. So even if you have some canes and stems sticking out above it, don't worry about those. What you want to do is protect the crown of that plant. And then just leave it like that all through the winter. And you want to use wood chips, wood chips or bark mulch because you don't want to use leaves or something that's going to mat down and just hold a lot of moisture around the crown. That'll cause it to rot. Then in the spring, maybe about April sometime, you start moving that mulch back as you start seeing some new growth. And that should help it make it through the winter. And as long as that crown survives and you have some main stems that are surviving, then you can give it some fertilizer, some compost, and it should really bounce right back. Oh, before we go uh, to break, you know, there's so much love for the daffodils and the tulips. You mm-hmm. mentioned the snowdrops. Sure. What about the allium? 
Oh. No love for the alliums. I love alliums. <laughs> <laughs> yes, alliums are great. You can get these beautiful bulb alliums, plant them now, and then they'll come popping up through the foliage of your perennials and other bulbs and have these airy little purple bulbs just kind of floating along the top of your flower garden. Really pretty. So it's the onion flower? Yes, it's the onion flower. And they're onions. not cheap. And they're not cheap, no. <laughs> and there's a lot of variety, a lot of colors, too. So, Charlie, as we head to break again, you know, we wanted to make sure that, that our local gardeners are, are prepared for, for winter. Any other tips that you want to give our listeners of what they should be doing to prepare their yards for winter and keeping their perennials, their bulbs, growing for next year? Yeah, so if you have a perennial flower garden, now's a great time to do that final weeding. I know you're probably sick of weeding, but do yourself a favor and do a final weeding of that perennial flower garden right now, um, pulling all those out there, maybe add a little compost, maybe even put a little bark mulch around some of the tenderer perennials, maybe the butterfly bush or a few other things that maybe hardy hibiscus sometimes doesn't come back consistently. That way it'll protect it a little bit more. And then, of course, for your lawn, make sure you're not collecting those grass clippings and leaves. Leave them on the lawn for your final mowing, and uh, that way it'll actually add some fertility to that lawn so you don't have to fertilize so much in the spring. I did want to take a, just one more call. Jay from Ellington, we just have a, under a minute, Jay, if you want to just uh, ask your question quickly. Um, sure. Thank you so much for, uh, for taking my call. I have a, a row of pine trees in the back of my property, and some of the branches have been damaged through ice storms and snow and where they've cracked and whatnot. And I'm wondering, what's the best time of year to remove or you know, trim back those damaged branches? Is it, is it now, or do I wait till the spring? Um, and uh, so that's my question. Sure, thanks. Uh, so yes, if they're damaged branches, if they're broken or the branches are not doing well, you can prune them back pretty much any time. So yes, you can go out this fall, cut those back to the main trunk. I'm assuming they're white pines, so yes. that means you're not going to get more new growth coming or anything of that nature. So yes, go ahead and do it. Good time of year, nice weather to do a little pruning. And then uh, before we go again, I, you know, we hear often about this drought and how it's yes. been a rough, uh, rough summer again, especially for farmers. Should people expect that a lot of the perennials are not going to be coming back in the spring? Well, I don't think we ever okay. want to expect that. <laughs> <laughs> Prepare. Prepare. But that's why I keep yeah. emphasizing watering into the fall, even after you've cut your perennials back. Make sure that soil is staying nice and moist. Put some compost down, bark mulch. That'll protect that moisture level in the soil through the winter. Hopefully with a nice snowfall this winter, we'll get a rejuvenation of our soil water and moisture. Um, but if we don't get that, uh, you are looking at some of the more tender ones or the ones that were stressed mm -hmm. that may not come back next year. But I always look at it as an opportunity to buy some more. And I think I want to have a field trip to your house, Charlie, to see your yard. <laughs> well, I'm not so sure. It's one of those cobbler's friends things. <laughs> I see. And what are you planting uh, right now? Well, we'll be planting bulbs and garlic and shallots. Um, yeah, in the next couple of weeks. Well, I want to thank Charlie Nardozzi for joining me. He's a horticulturist, an author, and host of the Connecticut Garden Journal. You can't miss it each Thursday at 3.04 p.m. on WNPR. Always a pleasure to have you here. It was great to be here, Lucy. And coming up, we're actually going to talk to a New Haven-based producer. Her name's Ann Johnson-Prom about super hummingbirds. It's premiering next week on PBS's Nature. It's the 35th season. We're going to hear more. That's after the break. This is where we live.
This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The 35th season of Nature premieres next Wednesday on PBS stations nationwide. The season begins with an episode called Super Hummingbirds, produced by New Haven-based filmmaker and producer Ann Johnson-Prom. She joins us from the studios of Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut. Welcome to the show, Ann. Glad to be here. So why hummingbirds? What makes these you know, tiny pollinators so interesting to filmmakers and producers such as yourself? Well, they're amazing little animals, and only recently have we been able to get a really good idea of what they do. Uh, With the advent of high-speed video cameras, we can slow down these incredibly fast-moving creatures and see what they're up to when they're zipping by and fighting in front of us. So I made a hummingbird film six years ago for Nature, and at that point, high-speed video was just coming online. And then two years ago, Fred Kaufman, the executive producer of Nature, asked me if I thought there was a potential for another hummingbird show. And I jumped for joy because, yes, I love filming hummingbirds, and there are so many stories that we weren't able to do in the first show that we can now uh, bring to viewers in the second show. So those of us living in Connecticut, we're familiar with a particular species of hummingbird, the little green one. I guess it's the ruby-throated hummingbird. Is that right? Correct. Yeah, the little ruby throat. But in reality, as our listeners, when they watch uh, super hummingbirds, they're going to learn there's several hundred species of hummingbirds found in the Americas. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. So hummingbirds are only found in what we call the New World, North America, Central America, and South America. And that makes them you know, unique for people who are interested in birds and bird watchers. The real concentration of the diversity of different species of hummingbirds are in the Andean region, so Peru, Colombia, and Ecuador. And hummingbirds have evolved there and just proliferated. And then, you know, millions of years ago, crossed over the Isthmus of Panama and into Central America. And then about 12 species have crossed up into North America and make their lives here for the summer and then migrate back. A couple in the West Coast spend all year there. But we'll see in Connecticut the ruby-throated hummingbird that will come... I had marked down this year when I saw the first one in my backyard in New Haven, and it was May 9th. Uh, A friend of mine told me last night that he still has a ruby throat in his yard in Hamden. So that's probably going to, that little bird's going to get, need to get a move on. Uh, So it's probably go all the way to Texas and Mexico for the winter. That's really interesting to think about that they're still around here. It's getting pretty chilly. (laughs) It is getting pretty chilly, but that's another, you know, what's amazing about hummingbirds to me is that you think they're one thing, these delicate animals, and yet they're tough as nails, they're fierce, they fight all the time for sugar, and they're predators. And they have these abilities to migrate thousands of miles. So they're not at all delicate. They look really small, but they're tough. And this migration that this ruby throat in my friend's yard is going to make, for instance, it will probably flies 30 miles a day on its way down to Louisiana. And then some hummingbirds actually cross over the Gulf of Mexico without stopping. So, you know, they're not anything to be taken lightly. If they were human-sized, they would be pretty darn fierce. A gardener once told me that the hummingbirds that we see in our gardens uh, each summer into the into the fall, um, that they actually, you, you may be even seeing the same hummingbird. Is that is that accurate? Absolutely. There are banders who, you know, place little tiny fish and wildlife silver bands that are each have a specific number on 
the hummingbirds. And they have licenses to capture the hummingbirds and have been trained to do this. And they set up these stations in the same place every year, and they will catch the same bird at the same feeder within three to four days of the time they caught it the year before. So they're habitual. Though te- that tells us about these little hummingbirds is that they're, they know where they're going, and they're ha- they're very, they form habits. They know that the food on the route is going to be good for them there, and they just keep doing that. We know hummingbirds are pollinators, so the symbiotic relationship between the bird and the plant. Uh, they distribute the pollen for the flowers, and then the, the nectar gives them fuel. But how they actually lap up that nectar has long remained a mystery to scientists. Um, when we watch super hummingbirds, we are introduced to one Yukon researcher, Alejandra Rico Guevara, who's taken on this initiative to understand what's happening when a hummingbird sticks its bill inside a flower. Let's hear a little bit of that clip. Inside his workshop, Alejandro is creating something special. He's mounting a real flower onto one of his clear feeding tubes with a cutout on the side, a window to the inside of the flower. Now, with high-speed macro photography, we see something truly new. Hummingbirds' long tongues have four tips that open as the tongue dips into the nectar. A fringe of tiny filaments uncurls along the edges of the open tips, creating grooves that spring open, filling the tongue with nectar. That's from Super Hummingbirds, the premiere episode of Nature's 35th season, airing next Wednesday on PBS stations nationwide, produced by our guest, Ann Johnson-Prum. She's a New Haven-based filmmaker and producer, joining us today from the studios of Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut. So this listening to the narrator uh, and mentioning these four tips, it sounds like they have almost like their tongue is forked. Yes. So that And the narrator was Patricia Clarkson who was wonderful to work with. Yeah, so Alejandro, when he was a grad student at UConn, wanted to ask the question, what's going on inside the flower? We see Hummingbirds, we see them dipping their beaks into the flowers, but how are they getting the nectar out? The tongue is only as long as the beak. So there's something happening in there that nobody had been able to see. So he devised these ingenious little flowers where he could see what the tongue was up to. And with macro photography, high-speed macro photography, the tongue, when it enters the flower, bifurcates to the right and left. And then on the sides of that are these little spongy materials like um, cilia that will mop up the nectar. And then the tongue is retracted back into the bill. And when it's in the bill, the bill squeezes down and takes the nectar out of the tongue. And it was pretty innovative. People before that thought that the tongue works sort of like a straw, And just through Alejandro's dogged uh, creativity, um, he was able to figure this out. And it it is really a visual scene. It sounds great on the radio, but um, if people are able to see this, it's really kind of breathtaking to see what's going on in that sort of macro world of the hummingbird tongue. Another reason for them to watch nature uh, next Wednesday. So we're talking about how hummingbirds have these amazing tongues, but we learn that their endurance is pretty amazing too. So throughout the documentary that you worked on, uh, we're meeting scientists who've been studying how and why hummingbird species have um, been able to survive and thrive at high altitudes. Tell me more about some of those scientists. What were they looking for? 
Well, the, yeah, we followed a scientist, uh, Christopher Witt, who's at the University of New Mexico, and he was really intrigued about hummingbird physiology. You see hummingbirds way up in the Andes, above tree line, you know, in this habitat called the Altiplano. There are no trees. The flowers are really tiny and are just embedded on the ground almost. It's so cold and harsh, and there's glaciers, and it's cold and foggy, snowy, and there are very few things that thrive there, but hummingbirds do. So humans have a hard time up there. We're huffing and puffing at 14,000, 16,000 feet, and the hummingbirds seem to just be flying along fine. So he wanted to look at how the hummingbird was able what in its physiology allowed it to live where other animals and and humans were having trouble? And it turned out that he found that the hummingbird had this ability to grab uh, oxygen out of the air and, you know, had molecules in its body which could trap oxygen at a much higher rate than we could. So, in fact... Like a biker who you know is, is on those special medicines to make it make them be able to pedal in the Alps of Italy, the hummingbirds have the same ability, but it's natural, and they're able to basically flood their body with much more oxygen than we can. That's really interesting. I've been to Peru a few times, and I know um, to get used to the high altitude, you drink a lot of that coca tea. <laughs> exactly, exactly. We're all sipping coca tea, but the hummingbirds are just, you know, their hemoglobin is grabbing oxygen. Mm-hmm. So they have a, you know, a, that little trick up their sleeve or up their wing. So we're talking about the many species found in South America, but um, we mentioned earlier the ruby-throated hummingbird that we see here in, in Connecticut. Other species in, in North America that we'll discover when we watch super hummingbirds? Yeah, we follow a bird called a, a broad-tailed hummingbird that we filmed just outside of Tucson, Arizona. And there we follow a, a nesting uh, female with her young. You see the babies fledge the nest, take their very first flight, and learn what it's like to be a hummingbird. So that's a very sweet story that we filmed right here. When uh, viewers watch Super Hummingbirds, they're going to see that there's also an extremely combative side to them. Let's hear the clip. High-speed maneuvers are a show of force. Wheeling, colliding, flying backwards. Now, they push themselves to the limit. Hearts racing at 1,200 beats a minute, lungs bursting. They spend every last molecule of oxygen, every ounce of fuel. But at 500 frames per second, their battles are a breathtaking ballet. So unfortunately, our listeners can only hear what's happening. So these hummingbirds are are dive-bombing and cartwheeling through the air. You know, why are they acting this way? They're defending resources. I mean, they live, their physiology is on such a knife edge that they will defend if they find a flower that has the nectar that is you know producing high quality nectar they will fight for the right to feed on that flower and they have those beaks that not only reach into the flower to gather nectar they also come in handy in combat and you will see in that in this film you'll see them making contact with those bills and one of them just grabs another hummingbird by the head and tosses it off a branch you know so it's uh it's a whole side to them that I never knew about until I started working on this, my first hummingbird film, and saw 
hummingbirds fighting in slow motion. And it was uh, like the, you know, the veil was pulled aside and you saw this incredibly uh, aggressive and combative uh, behavior from them. Um, you know, we think of hummingbirds as only uh, drinking the nectar from flowers, but they actually also hunt. What are they hunting? They're hunting uh, insects on the wing. That's the protein they need. They can't survive on just the uh, sugar in nectar, just as we can't. So they spend about half their time perched on places where they can sally out and grab little tiny bugs with their with their beaks. Well, tell us about your craft, Anne, because, again, these birds move very quickly. If you blink, they're gone. How challenging was it to get that footage? It, you know, it takes a huge amount of time. Um, we have to wait a long time. My other filmmakers who work with me is a fellow, Mark Carroll, who goes on shoots with me a lot, and we call it staring at a bush. Um, well, we will set out on the day, and you try to find a place where hummingbirds are going to be doing the behavior you're trying to capture, whether it's insect eating or nectar feeding or fighting, and then you hope that it's going to happen. And it's you know sort of like going fishing, I guess, would be the best analogy, or bird watching. You try to put yourself in the best position to get what you need, and then it's a little bit of luck and skill at that point. You mentioned this is the second uh, film that you've worked on that focuses on on hummingbirds. What's something that you took away um, from producing uh, this second episode, and and what do you hope uh, our listeners who are going to watch will take from it? Well, I think that nature is just amazing. And I've spent a lot of time in this film waiting in the forest and being in the forest and waiting for hummingbirds, but also looking at a lot of other things that are in the forest with it. And I'm always amazed at just the complicated web of interactions, and we're just scratching the surface of this amazing, intricate, and beautiful world. And we should all go out there and try to learn about it as much as we can. I've been talking to Ann Johnson Prum, a New Haven-based filmmaker and producer of Nature's 35th season premiere, Super Hummingbirds. That's airing next Wednesday, October 12th from 8 to 9 p.m. on CPTV. She joins us today from the studios of Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut. And thank you so much for your time. Can't wait to see the, the full documentary. Oh, thanks so much. This was really fun. Where We Live is produced by Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. WMPR's executive producer is Katie Talarski. You can learn more about the show on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Have a great weekend.